0: It's mostly a professional site for career development, but they also have group support and discussion forums around the groups, and so we have a Black Hat group with almost 2,000 members, and we just started discussions around that. So if you're a member of LinkedIn, please try to join uh, the Black Hat group. And for 2009, we're going to launch a Black Hat forum server of some sort. We're still evaluating the technology. And this is gonna be a sort of a central meeting place for everybody uh, throughout the year to be able to share white papers, uh, talk, uh, keep the conversation going. There's already too many security mailing lists and security blogs. So we think we're gonna try a security forum and see how that works. Now I have a few administrative announcements before we introduce Dan and start off this conference. So, please turn your phones to a meeting mode or vibrate to not disturb the speakers. Remember to ask questions. Either raise your hand during a session if you have a question or immediately at the end of the session. And if it's something you don't want to ask in front of the audience, ask the uh, speaker at the end of the conference, I mean at the end of his speech in the uh, hallway. You see feedback forms, if you can fill out the feedback forms and turn them in, uh, we would appreciate it. It's how we keep an eye on our content and we steer the future direction of our conferences. Also, we have a drawing and you can win uh, free admittance to a future black hat if we draw your uh, feedback form out. When you're leaving and switching between rooms, Please leave your translation headsets on the counter uh, table at the back of the room so they don't go missing. That would be appreciated. All the presentations you hear will be updated uh, and online next week. And then as the uh, if the speakers present new updated materials, we'll make them as available online as soon as we get them. So if there's something you see on the screen that's different than the show CD-ROM, just wait a few days and we'll have it online for you. If it wasn't for all the sponsors you see out in the hallway, uh, this conference wouldn't be possible. So please take some time to visit all of our sponsors, ask them questions, tell them what you think of their technology, give them some feedback. Um, They're here more than just to try to sell you Technology, they're here to get your knowledge and feedback and to improve themselves. And so that's one of the big benefits of Black Hat is learning from each other. So try to help uh, them learn as well about our needs. Now, it's time to introduce Mr. Dan Kaminsky, our keynote for Black Hat this year. Now, for those of you who know Dan, He's always uh, produced interesting, uh, technical, and innovative talks, and he's always a very uh, fun speaker to listen to. Dan was coming up with uh, another interesting talk, and he inadvertently found a fundamental flaw in the domain name system, uh, most all implementations of the domain name system. And uh, that was, uh, what was that, late last year. And because Dan's a good guy, he performed responsible disclosure but as you'll see how do you perform responsible disclosure on a bug that affects everything on the internet it's very complicated Uh, and instead of just doing a posting to bug track and moving on with his life this consumed almost a whole year of his uh, life just trying to responsibly make sure people fix this bug. He finds the bug in a short period of time and the rest of his life is consumed with being a good guy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and as we'll see through Dan's talk that pretty much everything in the world relies on DNS and it's doing things it was never intended to do. Um, And that's really scary. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Dan Kaminsky. Dan?
1: give you a, a fast Okay. All right.
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Dan Kaminsky, and it is a honor to actually be out here in front of you again. Uh, I haven't been in Tokyo for a couple of years. I had a fantastic time the last time I was out here, and... Um, Truly honored to be uh, invited back to, to speak once again. It's um, it's been an interesting couple of months. It's been an interesting year to say the least. Uh, I've been doing a lot of things in terms of technology. In terms, of, my focus tends to be on large scale. Internet security issues and the uh, faults that come not from particular implementations, not from a particular line of code, but in the fundamental design of systems. Now, my hope when I do this stuff is that I'll find some new ability that will be really useful. The sad reality is often I find things and, wow, they they really need to be fixed. (laughs) So... Let me actually get the uh, the slides on stage here. It uh, doesn't need toggle? It does need toggle.
0: Let's see if that works. another toggle.
2: Can we. main screen turn on?
1: Main screen. Does it? Nope.
2: Off. Okay. So, a lot of my research has actually been on DNS, the domain name system. This is a system that maps names, like www.blackhat.com, to numbers, like 66.240.206.90. The internet does not run on names any more than the telephone network does. But a major difference is because numbers on the internet change so frequently, we don't even bother to remember numbers on the internet. We just repeatedly look them up with a system that is DNS. Now, at the end of last year, I was asked by a friend of mine, Hey Dan, uh, how would you make the internet faster? Specifically, we were talking about building a better content distribution network. CDNs, or content distribution networks, are networks of servers that provide data as fast as possible to any possible client that might request it. Since my experience is in DNS, um, of course I'm going to figure out some way of taking you know, that one thing I know and applying it to everything. In this case, that everything was CDNs. Well, DNS tells you which server to use. Maybe it can tell you the fastest server. Of course, Akamai does a lot of this. Akamai is a very popular content distribution network. But I wasn't thinking about that at the time. There's a problem, of course. DNS is very slow to update. In fact, it can take up to 72 hours for information to fully propagate through the domain name system. Now, I couldn't wait 72 hours to find a fastest server for content. I couldn't even wait 72 seconds. I needed a way to make DNS faster. Now, I actually had something that would do this from a, from a talk I had given in a previous year. Now, this would make DNS update really, really quickly. I was very excited. Then I realized, wait, I need DNS to be slow. Look, <laughs> the faster it is for a good guy to change something in DNS, turns out the faster it is for a bad guy who also change something in DNS. To cause, for example, the name, www.google.jp. Oh, okay. Okay. So whereas, sorry. Whereas the real Google might send you to the real address for www.google.jp, a bad guy would not be so friendly. I don't know where he'd send you, but it wouldn't be to the actual site. So the rule you end up with is slow to update equals slow to attack, fast to update equals fast to attack. So I thought to myself, oh, My content distribution trick is not going to work. Because if it works, DNS is gonna be in a lot of trouble. And then it worked. And then it worked perfectly. I was just trying to make the internet faster. But now I had a bug. And it was not a small bug. This was a bug that would break most internet applications. More than I even recognized at the time. The bug affected all major DNS servers on almost all networks. What was I gonna do? On February 20th, 2008, I approached Paul Vixie. Paul Vixie is the original maintainer of Bind, Mm -hmm. the internet's most popular name server. Paul Vixie is an institution. He's been doing DNS since I for the last 15 years, he knew everyone. So Paul suggested and mostly pulled together everyone who was necessary to understand the flaw and more importantly, to get fixes out to the public. On March 31st, 2008, a secret summit was held on the campus of Microsoft in Redmond, Washington. I was there, ISC was there, ISC are the makers of Bind and the employers of Paul Vixit, Cisco was there, NL Labs was there, Nominum, the game server company that provides services to a lot of major ISPs was there, Linux had a representation, we had about 16 people in that room. We had no politics. There was no time for politics. There was no room for politics. We all had a bug. We all had the same bug. And the implications of this flaw we all agreed, were severe and needed to be dealt with. We had three goals at our summit. The first goal was to understand what the nature of the problem was that we were looking at. And I will talk about the nature the rest of this talk. The second goal was to determine what to do about it. And the third was interesting. We had to figure out when. This is one bug that everyone shared that was trivial to attack once you had the basic idea of what to do. We agreed we would keep this completely secret And we would all release on the exact same day, synchronized ideally down to the hour or even the minute. And it worked. On July 8, 2008, we got a patch out, all of us, at the exact same time. Coordination of this level is exceedingly rare, possibly unique, clearly effective. This was glorious. We didn't really realize how strange it was that we were going to try to do this. But with no politics getting in the way and a shared threat to all of us, we did what had to be done. I did something controversial, something that to this day we don't know if was right or wrong, but I had to try. I agreed that if everyone else was going to go to these lengths to protect the internet, then the least I could do was limit the details that I provided publicly at least on day one. It takes time for people to deploy patches. It is not actually an instantaneous process. The nature of these patches was somewhat complicated, in fact, more complicated than we realized. We figured something would go wrong because for something of this scale, things were going so well, there must be something we're missing. And there was. But the full details of this, the absolute full details were held quiet for 30 days. What were the results of all of our work? When I finally presented the full details of this attack on August 6, 2008, over 120 million broadband customers were protected with deployed patches from one Neem server provider alone, and not even close to the biggest one. When I arrived a few days ago here at the KO Plaza Hotel, here, the KO Plaza Hotel is protected against my attack. We have an incredible amount of deployment of this patch. It is prob- probably the proudest I have ever been of, forget myself, the larger IT community. People heard there was a problem, listened to what we had put together, listened to their vendors, listened to their governments, Listen to the inventor of DNS, <laughs> and uh, and really stepped forward and protected their users. The large companies did well. As of 30 days in, we actually had about 70 percent of the email infrastructure at Fortune 500 protected. We had about 60 percent of the entire infrastructure at Fortune 500 protected. A lot of people did a lot of work to make this happen. Interestingly, in the States, we have something called PCI certification. It is a certification based on a a set of standards to try to encourage at least basic security practice. People actually patched for PCI. (laughs) That's actually probably a better hack than the original bug. We actually made an animation of the patching sweeping over. This was on 7.9, everything's red, meaning pretty vulnerable. This was on 7.16, a lot of yellow. Yellow means, oh, we thought that was going to be patched. It wasn't. But by around 8.3, by around August 3rd, 2008, We had a lot of green. Not perfect, maybe not even enough, but pretty good. So things went well. Um, Of my request to the security community to not speculate publicly, um, most people who figured out the attack stayed quiet. Actually, it was not a demand from me, but it was a request. The first person who found the bug, even though we tried to make a fix that could not be reverse-engineered, the first person to find the bug found it and told me in 51 hours. This is important. If this bug could not be fixed without everyone understanding what the fix was, then there's probably nothing that can be fixed without people understanding what the actual bug was. This was an experiment. It was an experiment that shows if you're going to fix a problem, you're fundamentally going to announce it too. I'm sorry, that is the nature of things. So why did we go through all of this effort? I mean, this was maybe a few days of finding problems and it's been all year to get them fixed. Why? Why would we go through all this? Now we can actually start talking about some technology here. So as I explained earlier, DNS is the system which maps names to numbers. It's like 104 information out here. It is a distributed system, which means Any time you ask the DNS a question, it can give you one of three replies. It can answer your question outright. It can say, www.foo.com. Oh, yeah. 6.6.6.6 is the answer you are looking for. It can say that. The DNS can also tell you, there is no such answer. I know you wanted something, but I don't know or it can give you a third answer. And that third answer is, I don't know, but why don't you ask this guy over here? He knows. Here's his name, here's his address. This process of redirection is fundamental to how DNS works and is called delegation. Now it's a lot of work to bounce around the internet to find your next server that might have, be closer and closer and closer to the one box that happens to know the answer you're looking for. And so we have dedicated systems that do this work. These systems are referred to as name servers or DNS servers. Bind is a name server. Microsoft DNS is a name server. Nominum writes name servers. Your laptop speaks DNS, and it will ask questions, and it will either get an answer or it will get an I don't know. Your laptop will not, however, bounce around the Internet trying to find the answer to a question. That job has been separated out. Now, let's talk about bad guys. If everything depends on receiving the right number for the right name, wouldn't a bad guy want his numbers returned instead? Absolutely. When you send out a request, is there some is it possible that a bad guy could pretend to reply? Could say, Oh, I'm I'm Google's name server. Google's IP address is this. Could that packet be put on the network? Would you receive it? Would it look like a valid response, almost. There is something that is supposed to prevent an attacker from generating false replies for names. And this something is called a transaction ID. It is a random number between zero and 65,000
1: that is sent
2: over the internet, hop by hop by hop, to a given name server, to the real name server of, say, Google. And because this packet has reached Google and has a number in it, Google can reply not just with an answer, but with something of a fingerprint, with something that identifies this particular answer as the correct one. The odds are not what they could be. There is a random number between 0 and 65,000, and that means that the good guy is 65,000 times more likely to have the correct answer. The bad guy has to guess. He doesn't know. The good guy knows. He was told what the precise number would be, 38912, whatever it happens to be. By modern standards, this is ridiculous. Modern standards would say, if you have to have a random number get returned, it should be between zero and several trillion, maybe even more, not zero and 65,000, that's ridiculous. The DNS specification, however, comes from 1983. And by modern standards, it's ridiculous, however, All modern systems are still built on the things we were doing in 1983. So there's a second defense mechanism above and beyond just this transaction ID, this zero to 65,000 number. And this mechanism is called the TTL, the Time to Live. This determines for these odds how often you can try to play the game, how often you can run the race. Suppose you are playing a lottery, and you can only play the lottery once a day, and the odds are one out of 65,000. You will have to play for about 32,000 days. You will have to play for a very long time. Now suppose, instead of, you can only play once a day, you can play once a second. Now, it's 32,000 seconds. That's not a long time, that's less than a day. And so, the time to live is the secondary security mechanism that tries to cover over the fact that one out of 65,000, is not very long odds at all. And so there was an RFC coming called Forgery Resilience. RFCs, or requests for comments, are in fact the internet standards community's way of capturing best guidance and best information, telling people what they should do to protect or engineer their networks. This RFC said, You should have very long time to live because that will keep your DNS secure. That will say it will take 32,000 days instead of 32,000 seconds to attack your names. If this RFC had ever made it out, my bug would have been discovered because this RFC is an open challenge that points directly at the problem. The problem is TGLs are not a security technology. They never were. There are three issues with all the logic that I just told you. The first two issues were known. If not fully, re- fully respected, they were at least known. The third is what's new. First, if you are going to say it is a race between the good guy and the bad guy, to reply with the correct transaction ID. The bad guy has a starter pistol, meaning he can start the race by forcing a request to happen. And the bad guy will always get a response in first. The good guy has to wait. The correct number has to go all around the internet to try to, the correct number has to reach the good guy. The bad guy will never be sent to him. He'll never see it. But that's an advantage. It means he doesn't have to wait. He can just, oh, you sent, you're you sending a request to Google. Immediately, hey, I have a response. It might not be the right response. It might be the wrong number. But it's definitely getting there first. The second problem is who says the bad guy can only reply once? The bad guy doesn't know what number to use but he can try one, or two, or three, or four. He can try as many numbers as he likes before the correct number reaches the real name server and the correct response comes all the way back. Let's say the bad guy can reply a hundred times, not unreasonable, before the good guy's reply comes in. That one out of 65,000, which already wasn't enough, just dropped to one out of 655. Now these are still long odds. 655 days is a long time. But there's a third issue. The third issue is that the bad guy doesn't need to actually wait to try again. TTLs are an effective security mechanism for an individual name. So for example, they will limit the number of races, the number of requests that actually leave a name server for www.foo.com. They will not, however, limit the number of lookups for 1.foo.com, 2.foo.com, because there is Because the TTL is focused on an individual name if you simply look up sibling names, related names, they will continually go. So, those one out of 65,000 odds, which we only wanted to do once a day, oh, you can keep playing over and over and over again by doing not the target name that you're looking for, but names that are nearby. So what? So you eventually get you eventually guess the correct transaction ID for 83.foo.com. Why would that be interesting? There are, as I said, three possible responses that you can have for any given query. You can have, here's your answer. Oh, you were looking for 83.foo.com? That's
1: at
2: 6.6.6.6. You can also say, I don't know. Oh, no, hey, uh, this is the official answer for com, and there is no answer. That host does not exist. Or, and this is where things get fun, 83.foo.com, I don't know, but why don't you ask www.foo.com, and here's its address. This is how DNS got you to the server in the first place. You started at root, and it sent you to the com server and said, here's the comm server's address. Then you go to the comm server, and it sends you to the foo.com server and says, here's the foo.com server's address. And now we are spoofing 83.foo.com. I don't know. But why don't you go to the www.foo.com server and here's its address. This is fundamental to the design of DNS. It has to work. And that is why this one bug showed up in every implementation. I wrote a tool called DNSRake, which I'll quickly go over. Where what it does is it sends a query to a name server for some random value It immediately sends 200 replies. And then in each of those replies, all it does is say, that random foo.com, that's at www.foo.com. And here's its address. It probably won't work because the odds are 65,000 divided by 200. So, you know, one out of 300. So it probably won't work. Oh well, we just move on to another name, and another name, and another name. The packets look like this. The attack execution looks like this. I'm sorry we're going to skip over a few sections in this talk. But the key to realize is in, in about 10 seconds, you corrupt an arbitrary address. You say, at Dan at foo.com.foo.com, yeah, that's at 6666. I tell you when I actually ran this attack, that wasn't foo.com. So this works against pretty much everything in wide deployment. Bind eight, Bind nine, MSDNS, Nominum with some tweaks. Nominum has some other defenses. Uh, it doesn't work against DJB DNS, PowerDNS, or MirrorDNS but they're not in wide deployment. At least it doesn't work against them if they have direct connections to the internet. One thing we found out in that month of that 30 days of deployment was firewalls were interfering with all name servers, even DJP DNS. The most commonly offered defense against people thinking they were vulnerable to these issues was, well, our DNS servers are special. They don't accept queries from the outside world. They only accept queries from trusted internal hosts. Everyone who thought they were protected by this was wrong. To understand why they were wrong, you need to understand the concept of what's called a bailiwick. A bailiwick is something of a security descriptor for a given uh, name server. DNS is a distributed system, but it has a hierarchy. Some nodes are more powerful than other nodes. The root DNS servers can return any name in the world, although in practice, they only return the names for uh, the addresses for uh, the uh, top-level domains, .com, .net, .jp, and so on. When the root servers send you to .com, the comm server cannot return records for Nets, cannot return records for JP, it can only return records for comm. When the comm server sends you to the foo.com server, the foo.com server can only return records for foo.com. Now, it wasn't always this way. In 1997, an uh, uh, individual by the name of Eugene Kashperev discovered When you asked him for his name to address mappings, he could reply with anyone else's. He could just volunteer extra information and that extra information would be trusted. Interesting. So he actually did some of this and uh, it did not have good effects as in he was arrested and uh, sent to the United States to be imprisoned. But after that, we realized uh, we needed to... I'm getting kind of an interesting noise out of this. Anyway. Um, Okay, thank you, Christopher. And so the security model of DNS was actually created that said that individual name servers... individual name servers could only reply with the names they were trusted for. However, DNS has always allowed you to make referrals to names you do not control. So www.foo.com can say, my IP address is whatever the IP address happens to be for www.bar.com. Well, the foo server is not trusted to provide bar IP addresses. And so what was created was a somewhat inefficient but actually secure system where if foo.com sent you to bar.com, there would immediately be a packet sent to the root servers and then to the com servers and then to the bar.com servers saying, hey, Chinese know where www.bar.com is, and then whatever address came back would then get applied to foo.com. What this means is that any lookup to an attacker, any lookup to foo.com, any lookup to badguy.com, for whatever reason, can immediately cause lookups to Google, lookups to Yahoo, lookups to wherever. This gets around all sorts of other protections because there are many, many ways to cause a network infrastructure to do lookups to a name that you control. Two obvious ways, well first off, there are web browsers. <laughs> you, uh, you can be behind the best firewall in the world and you probably still have access to the web. And it doesn't matter how you have access to the web. It just matters that you need to do DNS lookups, or a proxy needs to do DNS lookups, and it needs to do those lookups to an attacker-controlled name. And the attacker can always force, oh, you're looking up my name? I'm gonna force you to do an immediate lookup to Google, and oh, by the way, here's a bunch of fake responses from Google. Have a nice day. Mail servers are actually very problematic because mail servers will do DNS lookups trivially. You say hello to them, literally hello, and they will do a DNS lookup. They find out who they're talking to in the mail-from command, they do a DNS lookup. Spam check, DNS. Send a bounce, DNS. Send a newsletter, DNS. Anytime a mail server does anything, it will do a DNS lookup. And there are many, many other ways. So there's a takeaway here, which is that protocols cannot be understood in isolation. The theory was that if a name server only resolved names for a trusted host, it would be safe. But the reality was that trusted hosts resolve names for untrusted hosts all the time from other protocols. As security engineers, we are not... Protecting individual systems or individual protocols. We are protecting systems as a whole. And if you don't see how all the individual protocols of your systems interact, you won't be able to secure against what the attackers see, obviously. Let's talk about the fix. Before we had odds of 65,536 to one. There was a suggestion in 1999 from Dan J. Bernstein that said, hey, this isn't enough. We have another place in the DNS packet where we can get more numbers, more space, more randomness. Let's use it. And his fix from 1999 increased the odds up to one out of 163 million, all the way up to one out of two billion. Actually, one out of four billion. These numbers are even understated. Now that's an improvement. It doesn't mean that this is a perfect fix, because someone could still send billions and billions of packets. But that's a lot of traffic to go unnoticed. And more importantly, that's a lot to operationally not have other defenses against. Why not go for perfection? Why not think harder and find a perfect fix? The reality is this is not a trivial attack. One reason... There were so many, there was so much controversy and so many questions after we found this bug. Is that there's a good 15 different ways to do what I'm describing here. What I told you is actually only one of the more effective paths, but it's not the only one that works. There are many ways around TTL. As I told you, the overriding of name server records but there's also work with c names and d names and extra records that you just throw in for fun there's another family where you get the real server to just not reply you can ask for a non-existent query type a non-existent query class i don't i'm not going into the full detail of all of these variations specifically because it doesn't matter what matters is, is that everywhere you look in DNS, you find the TTL mechanism that we were depending on was worthless. There's just so many. There are naturally low TTL records. If you go to Facebook.com, it has a TTL of 30. If you look at Google Analytics, it has a TTL of 300. There are attacks that cause all TTLs to be dropped. There are attacks that cause TTLs never to get triggered. There are just so many different paths. And the funny thing, while working on this defensive strategy, is we realized Dan J. Bernstein defense in 1999 defended against all of these. And so that's why we went towards that path. There are some people who are trying to build, bring PTLs back, who think that this mechanism could be made to work once again. And one thing they ignore is the fact that, at minimum, you will be able to pollute one.google.com. 2.google.com, 3.google.com. They say, yeah, you might be able to pollute these names, but you won't be able to get at the thing that's really valuable, which is www.google.com. Unfortunately, the web is not kind. And on the web, if you can attack a sibling name, 1.google, or in this case, 1.facebook.com, you can actually attack the real site. Sibling domains have access to the authentication cookies of an arbitrary website. Sibling domains can actually, in some circumstances, actually access the content at a domain. And so what I demonstrated about eight months ago was injecting arbitrary video onto the Facebook site only because I had corrupted some other name. So there's a takeaway here. It's not enough to solve 99% of the problem if the last 1% is really, really important. You don't have to be perfect, but you don't get to ignore the web either. So is that all? So that's what we've been playing with, right? Right? That's not what's really important. What's really important is not how to attack DNS. We all recognize that DNS had to have some vulnerability. What's important is to realize why. Why it was so very interesting and so very problematic for DNS to have all of these flaws. Let's start with the top level domains. It is indeed possible to pollute not just google.com, not just facebook.com, not just any particular site, but to just take everything, to just take all of com, to take all of net, to take all of org. You can do this directly by stealing the NS or name server record for com, or you can do this indirectly by hijacking the addresses of the servers that supply call names. When the bad guy poisons calm, the flexibility he has is absurd. He gets names he didn't even know in advance he wanted. Literally, name servers start coming to you or coming to him and saying, Hello sir, would you like to poison Google today? How about Yahoo? Would you like just Yahoo's email? Would you like just IBM's email? Would you like to have it for the next 10 seconds? Or for the next three hours? The level of flexibility that an attacker gets is absurd. And as I alluded to, email becomes vulnerable. Email is special. In terms of the ratio between sensitive corporate information and total lack of encryption. There's just nothing at the level of electronic mail. It's 2008. We don't actually have secure email. This is an embarrassment. This is a failure. The attacker who owns DNS can intercept and alter arbitrary email between companies. That is why my top priority throughout the month of July was getting corporate email locked down. There's something called message pollution. One third of all attacks come from direct user action. Loading a document and downloading and installing malware. Now, you have to get the user to do it. You have to trick the user into reading your email, loading your document, running your executable. The best way to do that is to look like someone the user already trusts. If you're in contract negotiations and you receive a document, from someone you're negotiating contracts with, you're going to open that document and you're going to get owned. So never forget the human factor. Users are asked to escalate privileges all the time. We trust them. And every time we try not to trust them, users simply calculate. Hmm. On the one hand, I can do what IT says. On the other hand, I cannot get this deal and our business unit won't make our numbers and I'll lose my job. Not doing what IT says is always the path that's taken. (laughs) So all security mechanisms are vulnerable to human factors. One might say, Shouldn't the spam filter stop this? Because the emails that come in might come from the wrong IP addresses. The spam filters are using DNS too, and we own DNS. Also interesting in terms of communication, and I'm not gonna go into full detail, but SIP, voice over IP. Do you think voice over IP doesn't use DNS, when you issue a call somewhere, you don't think there are headers in there that say to complete this call, do this DNS lookup? There are. Obviously, the entire web is affected. The web uses DNS repeatedly. For an interesting experience, start browsing websites and only look at the amount of DNS traffic that goes by. It's pretty significant. But this problem is a lot bigger than the web. Because this has shown, at least me, the beginnings of a third age of hacking. In the beginning, all computer security, at least all remote attacks, were about attacking servers. A file server, a telnet server, a mail server, a web server. These were the things that were attacked because these, were the things that consumed data from an attacker. Over time, fewer and fewer servers started getting put on the internet, and more and more attackers started looking at clients, at web browsers. The attack surface from JavaScript, from ActiveX, from Java, from image formats, These things have been getting hammered over the course of the last few years. And they're getting better. They're getting a lot, a lot better. But there's a lot of code out there that uses the network that is not a web server, that is not a web browser. This is the desktop from an internet cafe near my house. These are various icons of applications people have used. Highlighted in red are all the applications on this one random desktop that are not web browsers, that are certainly not web servers, but are vulnerable to attack, or at least are now exposed and never were before. Browsers, are really good client code you wouldn't think they are except for the fact that at least people know someone's going to attack them do you think all of these things do you think Nero Home do you think internet checkers do you think Golden Casino do you think any of these other programs thought someone was going to attack them One of my friends wrote what's called a dumb fuzzer. Dumb fuzzers are embarrassing. They simply try random things. No intelligence, they just take a networked application and throw noise at them. With a couple hundred lines of code, he knocked out dozens, dozens of chat clients. This is not rare. Games do not survive attack well. <clears throat> but you don't need even complicated attacks to break things that are not that never knew they were going to be attacked. One of the things we knew was a problem and actually showed up in the month between uh, in the month of July was Francisco Amado's evil grid. All major software for sustainability purposes, has automatic upgrade code that downloads and installs new versions of the software. One would hope that this was done securely and that the software that was installed would not be malicious. In the presence of DNS vulnerabilities, all of the packages you see here were insecure. Auto upgrade is hard. Your package must be signed, it must be signed by you, it must be the correct product, it must be a new version. There are so many things that can go wrong and pretty much the only people we know for sure are doing it right are Microsoft. Everyone else is failing pretty badly. So the takeaway here is that code that's never been attacked The evidence suggests it's just remarkably fragile. And when DNS went down, all of these other things suddenly became exposed. But what of SSL? Everyone thought, no, 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 we don't need to really worry because anything sensitive is running over SSL. You wouldn't believe the number of times that I heard this. So this was the first big test of SSL. Has it stood up? Because of the strength of its crypto, or has it stood up because no one had the opportunity to play man in the middle, to be in between the client and the server? There are many problems in the real world with SSL. First off, it's not particularly widely deployed. If a site's not using SSL, obviously SSL is in no position to protect anything. Secondly, the data actually suggests that users admit that users ignore errors. I say here this data is from Consumer Reports. It's not. It's from a company called Venafi, V-E-N-A-F-I, and what they found is that 41% of users admit to ignoring security errors. 43% claim to abandon. But when you actually look at what happens in the field, 99.5% people in one case said, "Oh." There's no security on this site. I still need to use my online banking. Third problem is that even when we try to use SSL, the browser first sees if it should try not to use SSL. So you know what the attacker does? He doesn't send the user to the secure site. He just keeps using the insecure version. The fourth problem is that we have a problem with the credentials we use to log into sites, and the same credentials that we will use to log into the SSL version of a site, we will hand to the non-SSL or attacker-controlled-via-DNS version of the site. There's a lot of people vulnerable to this. Look for a tool called Cookie Monster. The fifth problem is that not everyone is actually using SSL correctly. In fact, outside of web browsers, almost nobody is.
1: Certificates
2: are more than just collections of prime numbers. They identify endpoints. But people don't want to deal with identification. It's not free. There are operational considerations. And so they say, I will make a secure connection to whoever is out there. So you might make a secure connection to the attacker. And they don't check. When I actually looked to see how many people were doing this, 42% of the SSL servers I found on a single scan weren't even trying to be secure. 42%! Almost half! I don't even know about the other half. But these guys weren't even pretending. Who's using these self-signed search? Who's using SSL in a way that does nothing? SSL VPNs. This is software that has no other purpose in the whole world but to prevent bad guys from seeing your data. Most SSL VPNs will happily create an SSL session to someone who they have no idea who it is, but hey, he speaks SSL, it must be secure. We're still using MD5, which is embarrassing. We've known MD5 has been broken since 1996. When a certificate goes bad, In the real world, we have nothing we can do about it. And in fact, there was just a generation of a bunch of bad certificates. There's a takeaway from all of this. There is no bug so good that another bug cannot make it better. People have said that there are competitions Now, which bug is the best bug? Are the SSL flaws bigger than the SNMPv3 flaws bigger or the DNS flaws bigger? And this is ridiculous. Use them together. You'll get more together than you will by trying to create some false prize. You'd think this would be obvious, but there was a discussion a while back saying, hey, uh, which makes you more afraid? What makes you more afraid? Package managers, which do not correctly validate the code that they download from the internet, or the DNS bug? Why or? Do both. Use DNS so that you download bad packages from the internet. (laughs) It works very well. It's not a bug competition, not because of some ethical limitation, but because it will blind you to actual vulnerabilities when bugs are combined. Eighth problem. Certificate acquisition itself depends on DNS. As I said earlier, SSL certificates are valuable not because they're a bag of bits, not because there's prime numbers, but because of the implication of identity. How are identities asserted in the Certificate Authority System, in SSL. There's something called domain validation, where in order to figure out if you should get an SSL certificate, they send you an email. This works by looking up a domain in WHOIS, which involves a DNS lookup, sending an email to the mail address on file, which requires another DNS lookup, or... Visiting a web page and looking for a file, which requires a third DNS lookup. This is not actually secure in the face of a DNS attack in any way, shape, or form. Now we're actually doing okay, because one of the things we did in July was contact every certificate authority on the planet and say, listen, everyone's looking over here, but we're worried about you. Go fix this. So, I had calls at 6.30 in the morning from Finnish certificate authorities, but we got this mostly done with. Something else that's interesting, let's talk about web interfaces for a moment. I said publicly in July that the entire web was broken, and most people thought I was talking about clients. I wasn't just talking about clients. Does anyone see the security vulnerability? On all of these login forms, forgot your password. How do forgot your password links work? This is a generic lost credential technique. Most users expect it on any site they go to, and almost universally deployed. There are three ways these systems work. One, they email you a password, but we own email. (laughs) Two, they email you a link that resets your password we own email again <laughs> the third model where they send you an email but ask you to do some additional things jump in hoops eh, this can work okay but number one and number two fall pretty much immediately once you own the ma- the name server of the mail server of the site you're trying to log into this is a skeleton key attack so July was spent dealing with Google and Live and Yahoo and PayPal and pretty much every major site that I knew of, which I have to apologize, was not enough Japanese sites, I'm sure. Um, But, yeah, we got a lot of stuff fixed. We didn't get everyone, but we did okay. I will skip this section. I think the major takeaway from this is that flawed authentication, across the board, is the unifying theme of 2008's major bugs. If you look at all the major bugs that have been discussed this year, and instead of trying to make them compete, look at what they all have in common, you will notice when we're dealing with people on the internet, we have no idea, excuse me, we have no idea who we're talking to. That's what the data says. My DNS bug happened because of an inability to correctly authenticate DNS replies. Mike Perry wrote a bug, called attack called Cookie Monster, that dealt with authentication credentials that should only go out over SSL, going out randomly, going out unencrypted. Mike Zussman found with SSL VPNs. This is software that has no other purpose but to encrypt its data to a particular endpoint. And it was not caring who that endpoint was. It was happy to give the data to a bad guy. Luciano Bella, this was in some of my earlier slides, I'll go back to it now, found that when Debian created certificates, when it was supposed to have random prime numbers, this was the heart of the authentication technique to have random prime numbers, and the numbers weren't random. And so anyone could figure out what the exact secret authentication credentials were. Again, a failure to synthesize unique authentication material. Evil grade. talk about Evil great for a moment. That was the automatic updater that I showed you earlier. Or more accurately, that was the automatic updater attack. There were packages coming down from the internet to update LinkedIn or Apple or OpenOffice. They didn't authenticate them. Machines could get owned. The University of Arizona's package manager flaws. That was more failure to up, authenticate update packages. That was the slashdot post that I had earlier. You may have heard in the press about some BGP attacks where the fundamental routing protocol of the Internet really doesn't know who's claiming that something is somewhere. It just says, well, One of the members of the club has claimed that I should send all of your data over here, and so I'm going to. Failure to authenticate the data supplied by an authenticated BGP peer. And the final bug that I want to go through is what I think personally is the coolest bug that I've seen in many years. This was Wes Hardikar's SNMPv3 bug. This bug is in huge amounts of network infrastructure right now. And this bug basically said, When you attempt, and I'm going to simplify this a little, when you provide the password to log into this device, you get to say how many characters of the passwords you need to guess. Yeah? You could actually say, I only want to guess one. This Is the first character in A, to the B, to the C, to the D? You try them all, and then you win. Another design bug that showed up all over the place. We are just not authenticating well. And this problem is haunting us across all the systems we built and across all the things that we would like to have secure. We don't get a handle on this authentication problem. It It is going to continue haunting us. These problems do not fix themselves. DNS was broken since 1983. We should not think that bugs that are old cannot come back. They just sit there, and they wait. So, when you're looking at auditing your systems, don't just look at the new stuff. In fact, the newer it is, probably the better it is. Because after all these years of talking security, we've started to have an impact. Worry about everything, and worry about how everything interacts. Because every bug I just told you here, every bug on these two pages of lists, all of these bugs have fantastic ways that they interact that can cause issues. I'll end it here.
0: I will. And Dan will be available outside to take questions. And uh, it's now time to take a lunch break and then we'll resume our afternoon sessions later. Thank you.
1: Hello. I think that went okay.